Richard Howard, who works out of the AWS London office, has interviewed a number of angel investors about the mistakes first-time founders should avoid, why CEOs should be open to mentorship, and more. Hi, uh, my name is Richard Howard. I'm a startup business development manager for AWS. And on the AWS Startup Podcast with me today is Rahul Vora. He is the CEO of Superhuman. Prior to that, he was the CEO of Reportive, which was purchased by LinkedIn. Uh, Rahul, welcome to the show. And if you could describe Superhuman in a little bit, could you tell us what it is? Well, thank you for having me. Superhuman is the fastest email experience ever made. Our customers get through their inbox twice as fast as before, reply to their important emails sooner, and many of them see inbox zero for the first time in years. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I can't wait to talk a little bit, uh, a lot actually, about Superhuman. But before we dive into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about Reportive. Uh, I was a big user of Reportive, and I loved it. And so for people that, that don't know what it is or didn't know what it was, could you describe it just a, a little bit? Absolutely. So the vision for Reportive was to help you be brilliant with people. We built the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. It showed you everything about your contacts right inside your inbox. When people emailed you, we showed you what they look like, where they work, their recent tweets, and links to their social profiles. We grew very virally and very rapidly. And so less than two years later, we were acquired by LinkedIn. It's awesome. And I, I loved it. So in all the previous roles I had prior to AWS, I was always in sales or, or kind of business development. And, you know, Reportive was a plugin that I used. And it was it was almost, again, you're trying to guess the email address of somebody you wanted to, to email. And then when you got it right, their LinkedIn profile came up and there was just like a little sigh of relief. It was, it's uh, funny because that wasn't really a feature that we were ever allowed to market. That would have been <laughs> against the terms and conditions of the LinkedIn API at the time. But you're right, it was a, a very popular feature. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was against the, the terms and conditions, but that is why, you know, someone told it, told me about it. And then it became, you know, LinkedIn Sales Navigator and and very sadly it's disappeared since then. So hopefully somebody else can can rebuild what it was. But I just wanted to dig in a little bit. You mentioned there it was the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. How did it do that? Like, did you have a mechanism? Did, like, did you market it? How did you get to that millions of users? Yes. So this was in my early days of an entrepreneurial career where everything was kind of random and accidental. So at Reportive, we stumbled across a very powerful form of virality. What I call two-dimensional virality, a kind of strong latticework structure that exists across organizations. To begin with, Reportive was picked up by founders and CEOs as they tend to read the technology press. And there's only one thing that CEOs like to talk about as much as their product or their latest financing, and that's productivity. And so the product was spread horizontally between companies as founders and CEOs would talk to each other about this amazing tool that they had just found. And then we noticed something remarkable. The product would spread vertically, firstly from the CEO up to their board, which would kickstart even more horizontal growth as investors can sit on many as 10 boards. And secondly, from the CEO into their executive team and the managers and then the whole organization, which would kickstart another wave of horizontal growth as folks move jobs and love to talk about their own productivity. And so at Reportive, we stumbled across this phenomenon of two-dimensional virality. It was a very happy accident. And at Superhuman, we deliberately engineered for that. In, in one of the podcasts you, you've done previously, I heard you you talk about 
when you when you got into LinkedIn, you were in uh, this guy called uh, Elliot Schmuckler's team who led growth at LinkedIn, and and you sat down and you asked him about you know how can you you know teach me everything about virality. I wonder if you could share a little bit about what he said as well. For sure. So it turns out that word of mouth is the secret flywheel behind any company that has reached massive scale. And you're right, this was a lesson that I learned relatively early in my career and was extremely fortunate to do so. So I worked with Elliot, he was our head of growth, and he took the company from about 25 million LinkedIn members to north of 250 million members, so 10x growth during his time at LinkedIn. And I asked him that question in our first one-on-one, please teach me everything that you know about virality. And he said, well, lesson number one is that there is no such thing as true virality, not in the way that you're thinking about it. No feature or product has ever really had a viral loop of greater than one for any meaningful period of time. Even at LinkedIn, the address book import only had a viral factor of 0.4, and at Facebook, the most viral company of all time, they were not able to sustain 0.7 for more than about seven months. And so at the end of the day, it always comes down to word of mouth organic spread. It comes down to brand. It comes down to building a product that people love. And that was a lesson that stuck with me super hard at that time. Because before then, I was obsessed with this idea of of viral loops and viral mechanics and maybe it was the address book imports like in LinkedIn, or maybe it was photo tagging like in Facebook, or maybe it was shared folders like in Dropbox. And all of these are important things, but the real flywheel, the real secrets to any company that has reached massive scale turns out to be word of mouth. It's really, really interesting because when you think about, you know, we're superhumanists today and we're going to cover superhuman a lot more, it's, you know, it's an enterprise company. And when you think of enterprise startups, you, you you never really think of virality. It's all, or they're going to build, you know, a sales force and you're going to have lead gen and inside sales and outside sales and, and all this. And that's how they're going to, you know, acquire customers. People don't often think of, you know, brand and word of mouth and things like that. It's, it's kind of building a sales force and this is how you do it. Right. And like they say, there are many ways to skin a cat. There are also many ways to grow a company. And it's often better to choose a way that has not been done by others, to be contrarian, to find a path less trodden. Because then you can stand out from the crowd, you can try something new, and you really do have to try something new in order to find a tactic or a strategy that wins. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love to, to, to go on to, to Superhuman uh, now. And so if anybody listening to this podcast has in the last, I don't know, four or five years received an email from a VC anywhere in the world, it will most likely have, you know, at the bottom sent from Superhuman. And you, you kind of touched on it at the top. So I wonder if you could dive a little bit deeper into exactly what Superhuman is and, and maybe why you built it. Well, at LinkedIn, we ran all of the company's email integrations. And during the two years of Reportive and the two years I was at LinkedIn, I developed a very intimate view of email. I could see Gmail getting worse every single year, becoming more cluttered, using more memory, consuming more CPU, slowing down your machine, and still not working properly offline. And on top of this, people were installing plugins like ours, Reportive, but also things like Boomerang, Mixmax, Clearbit, you name it, they had it. And each 
plugin took those problems of clutter, memory, CPU performance offline, and made all of them dramatically worse. So we decided it was time for change. We imagined an email experience that is blazingly fast, where searches are instantaneous, where every interaction takes place in 100 milliseconds or less, an experience where you never had to touch the mouse, where you could do everything from the keyboard and fly through your inbox, an experience that just worked offline so you could be productive from anywhere, and an experience, of course, that had the best Gmail plugins built in natively, and yet somehow was subtle, minimal, and visually gorgeous. And so with all of that, we built Superhuman. As of now, so you've, Superhuman has been going for, for some number of years, but it is still in kind of invite-only phase. Is that correct? We run a waitlist. So yes, broadly speaking, I'd, I'd say that's correct. Although I think our waitlist is widely misunderstood. Tell me why it's misunderstood. What is, what is misunderstood about it? Well, I think a lot of folks believe that the the closed waitlist process is designed to create scarcity, to drive word of mouth, maybe even to create... Uh, FOMO, that, that sense of missing out. Uh, but nothing could be further from the truth. And I think that marketing fundamentally boils down to the Paul Graham adage, build something people want. Now, we have yet to spend a single dollar on marketing, but people really want to get through their email faster. And so in a very real sense, superhuman markets itself. And we do now have 320,000 people on our waitlist. And a lot of folks think that that's some kind of marketing, te marketing technique, but it's not actually true. We work around the clock to get through that waitlist as fast as we can. And what folks may not know is that for each new user, we do a live concierge onboarding. This is a 30-minute one-to-one video call with one of our wonderful onboarding specialists. And in these onboardings, we teach faster workflows to get to inbox zero. We teach powerful shortcuts so you never have to touch the mouse. And if you're very far away from inbox zero, we wipe the slate clean so you're within a stone's throw of it. And that's the reason why we do the onboardings and why we run the waitlist. No, it, it makes sense. I guess when you have a product that is so new and, and innovative and you want people to really get the full benefits of it, it makes sense to have that almost intimate, hands-on introduction to it from somebody. And, you know, having that one-to-one -one with somebody is, is great. And and I read that you actually did the first, I think it was 200 or so onboardings yourself. Yep, that's that's about right. Probably three or 400. Okay. And then, so, th so this gets me to, to a question and I want to dive a little bit deeper into the to the onboarding process and how you have gone from you doing it to scaling it. But you're a multiple time founder now. Do you feel that it is imperative that the CEO, the founder of the company does these first, you know, in, in Superhuman's case, onboardings, but in other companies' case, you know, the first sales to really understand what the customer is asking for and how they're going to use the product? A hundred percent. If you're planning to do onboarding, or even if you're still in the phase of figuring out what your product is and whom you should be selling to, the founder should take the lead. One of the founders, the product founder, ideally the CEO, should do the onboardings. Now, the goal of this phase is to test whether the company is ready to start doing onboardings. The assumption is that of all the people in the company, the product founder should be able to do them best. After all, they hold the most integrated view 
and they should already have a wide range of skills across sales, active listening, and user experience design. And so at Superhuman, like you said, I did the first several hundred onboardings myself. And in this phase, I wouldn't be too concerned with how long the onboardings take. In fact, at that time, I would often take up to two hours myself. And each onboarding had about six different parts then. So first of all, I would start by giving a demo of Superhuman and sharing all of the things that made it magical and delightful. Second, I would remind the person that Superhuman is a paid product and I would quickly measure price sensitivity using a methodology called the Van Westendorp methodology. And for those that don't know about it, it's one of the quickest and easiest ways to figure out pricing. And then number three, I would ask the person how they do their email and I would take note of all the Superhuman features I would want to show them. Number four, I would then show them how to get through their email, but twice as fast as they were doing before. Number five, I would insist they do their email with me for about half an hour. Now this part is crucial because every single time I would find five to 10 bugs and I would then take these bugs back to the team and insist that we fix them for next week. Now imagine if we didn't fix the bugs, next week those exact same issues would be reported and we would not learn anything new. But if we did fix the bugs, then next week we would be able to learn about the next set of issues. And then finally, I always love to gift the person to thank them for all their time. I'd often leave a special bottle of whiskey or a special wine or some other really thoughtful gift. And during this phase, I would be collecting data on how these users are doing. What is their engagement? What is their retention? Their product market fit score, their NPS, their virality. And the crazy thing is we found for all of these metrics that we were beating industry benchmarks to the point where we were category leading. And so in this fashion, I ramped to about five or six onboardings per week. And I would say after this, if you've done around 200 onboardings and you still have great metrics, then you know that onboardings could work for your company and you're ready to move to phase two of onboarding. So tell us, and I guess phase two is, is kind of scaling it out, not just having the founder do it and kind of training a team of people to do it. Sure. In phase two, the thing to test is, can another senior member of the team who is not the founder take the lead? The primary goal is to show that somebody else can do the onboardings and still produce great metrics. In our case, I asked our head of growth to do the onboardings. Now this phase also has a secondary goal, which is to iterate the onboarding experience towards something that can scale. In our case, we were able to get the onboardings from two hours down to one hour and without impacting any of the metrics. They all remained category leading. Our head of growth ramped to 20 onboardings like this per week. And if, after you've done another 200 onboardings, you still have great metrics, then you know that onboarding works for your company, even when it is not you doing them. And at that point, you're ready to move to phase three. As the founder, as somebody who, who I guess feels a lot of ownership over, over Superhuman, over the product, over the customers, did you find it difficult at all to, to let go a little bit? Or was there kind of a, a moment where you're like, you know, it's time and if we're going to ever scale this thing, I need to be able to let go? I didn't find it that difficult at all, actually. It became, and I think this is true for most founders and CEOs, it became a part of my week that I really enjoyed. I love spending time with customers, but which I could feel becoming lower and lower leverage over time. 
as a founder, as a CEO, your primary job is to continually build leverage. And that means continually get more out of each hour every single week than the previous week. And so each week, if you're doing the same things over and over again, by definition, you're not building leverage. So as soon as I knew that we had something special, my mission became, well, okay, how can I start to build leverage? How can I scale this? How can I build a team? Phase one was you. Phase two was your senior leadership, your, your head of growth. And then what was phase three of the onboarding process? In phase three, you build a full stack growth team. Now here, full stack means that Everybody on the growth team does a little bit of everything. Demand generation, lead qualification, customer support, and of course, onboardings themselves. The primary goal of this phase is to show that somebody other than a senior member of the team can do onboardings and still produce great metrics. The secondary goals of this phase are to further evolve the onboarding experience towards something that can scale, and crucially, to create the training plans for phase four. So we hired three growth generalists in this phase. They got the onboardings from one hour to 45 minutes, once again, without impacting any of the metrics. And in this phase, I would expect the growth generalists to each be doing around 20 onboardings per week. If after a few months, you still have great metrics, then you know that onboarding works for your company even when it's done by new employees at some scale. And so at that point, you're then ready to move on to the fourth and final phase. And the fourth and final phase is? When you build a team of onboarding specialists. This is a role that specializes in nothing but doing incredible onboardings. And once these folks are trained and ramped, they should be able to do the onboardings better than anybody in the previous phases, including the founder, including the CEO. The primary goal of this phase is to scale revenue whilst maintaining everything that makes the experience delightful and magical. And during this phase, we got onboardings down from 45 minutes to 30 minutes, once again, without impacting any of the metrics. Now, it is super important to run a comprehensive training program for each new onboarding specialist. They are now the front line of the company, and you want to ensure that the customer experience remains incredible. At Superhuman, our training program is eight weeks, and once fully ramped, each onboarding specialist is able to do 35 to 45 onboardings per week. Now, when founders get to this phase, they often ask me what the ideal background for an onboarding specialist is. Most founders assume that they should look for a sales background, and this can certainly work very well. But we have found that other backgrounds can also work very well too, notably teaching and hospitality. So I would encourage founders to look more widely and to build a diverse team as possible. For sure. And it's really interesting that you kind of honed in on the training and the ramping up, because I think a lot of founders, a lot of early stage companies, um, you know, they're hiring great people, but what they want is those great people to hit the ground running the second they walk in the door. And they somewhat discount the value in training and ramping up and making sure this person that you've hired and you spent you know, a lot of time and money hiring is actually going to be as effective as possible once they're full-time doing the job. A hundred percent. If anything, I would over-invest in training rather than under-invest. I would spend the extra few weeks 
rather than try and squeeze training into a shorter period of time. And the pressure is understandable. The most common reason for a startup to miss their revenue plan is because they scaled their onboarding or the sales team a little bit slower than they thought they would. Hiring people is tough. Training people is hard. It is going to take longer than you think it will. But it is a false economy to do the training too quickly. Because remember, these wonderful people are now the front line of your company. And they represent the company. They represent you. So overinvest in training rather than underinvest. For sure. And it, it's something that I didn't, not that I didn't believe in, but I didn't realize how important it was until I, I got to Amazon. And Amazon has a full-on two to three month ramp process. And, you know, tell every new hire, you know, we hire you because you have this, this bias for action. A lot of the people in the startup business development team have uh, founder backgrounds. And so they want to hit the ground running. But, you know, we tell them respect the ramp because the second that you speak to a customer on behalf of AWS, they are going to expect you to know literally everything someone who's been here for five years will know because you are that public face. You're the person that is representing AWS. And if you have been here for a week and you don't know anything, that is a really bad customer experience. I completely agree. For any of us in customer-facing roles, and, and that could be, I mean, there are so many that there's business development, there's onboarding, there's community, there's evangelism, really whatever it is, people look to us for our expertise. They're, they're often looking for the 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 safety in the knowledge that the person they're talking to knows their stuff and if you if you crack in that confidence or if you don't know the things that you should then they might consider that other vendor they'll be like well the the other team seems to know their industry a little bit better and so there is there really is no shortcut for this study everything complete the training and and to founders who are listening design the most comprehensive training program you can you know, one of the ways that we thought about it is, is to go back to our university days and to think about the lectures that we went through. And, and for the most part, they weren't particularly good because, you know, delivering a great lecture is hard. But ask yourself, what would make a fantastic training program? What if you could take all the things you didn't like about studying at university or learning at previous companies and do the opposite? What would that training program look like? So that's the the onboarding process, and it's incredibly in depth, and it's and it's uh, you know obviously worked incredibly well for for Superhuman. But what, one of the things I wanted to ask: so you mentioned that there are three hundred twenty thousand people on the waitlist, and but you haven't you know you haven't done any marketing. So I wondered how have you acquired three hundred twenty thousand people who wanted to to try Superhuman? Is there a, you know a tip? Is, is it PR? Is there there something else? We, from the outset, anticipated a growth strategy with three core pillars. Uh, number one was PR. And I think we've definitely been able to punch above our weight for the frequency and the quality of press coverage for a company of our size. The second was virality and brand building. And, and that's a direct link from Elliot's advice all the way back at LinkedIn nearly five years ago at this point. And the third was content. So for example, about one and a half years ago, I wrote the article on products market fits that you mentioned earlier. And that has become in that year and since the most widely shared entrepreneurship article. 
Now, it's actually nothing to do with Superhuman. It's what I hope will be a seminal piece for the uh, entrepreneurship community going forwards and a piece that every single founder should read. And it's my way of giving back because it's something that reaped tremendous benefits when we implemented it at Superhuman, but it also gets our brand in front of every single founder. Uh, and that's great content marketing because every single founder should be using Superhuman. And so those were our three pillars of uh, growth, PR, virality, and content. And I think you guys are, you know, in the press a lot for, for a company that is, you know, is in close beta is, you know, you've raised a series A, but you're not a public company and you're not um, in a bunch of cities like, you know, an Uber might've been in the early days. I remember, so I, I worked at Uber back in 2012 and you should have a joke that, you know, if Uber, if Uber sneezed, TechCrunch would write about it. And it's just because the founder had a great relationship with a bunch of the journalists there. And it worked incredibly well. And, you know, whenever we launched a new city, that's, that's what worked. And, and our first audience in any city were the founders, where it was the tech audience, people that read TechCrunch. And it, and it was an incredible way of getting people on the ground to, to know about us. And then when the service was really good, then we had the word of mouth and that kind of spread virally. But I, you, you mentioned, you know, they're the, the product market fit. Um, article, which is probably is is the article that I share the most with with founders. And my guess, I don't know if if first round share the information with you. It's probably the most popular article on the first round kind of um, blog. Yep, it was the most popular in that year, and it c c continues to grow. I feel like it's probably the most popular in the last couple of years. Uh, we, we shall see. I mean, the the thing with content, and this the sort of a. Uh, a hidden lesson here is you want to write evergreen content. Yeah. And so I think you're right. I think over the coming years, it will become, I hope, one of the most popular. Uh, and the trick for anyone thinking of executing this strategy is not just what's going to be relevant today or next year, but what will be relevant five years from now. Those are the pieces that really stand the test of time. So let's dive into a couple of the pieces, uh, a couple pieces of advice that are in there. You want to give us the the kind of the lowdown on the article. It's a, it's a it's a long article, but it's incredibly incredibly valuable and worth reading. But if you could give us the the high concept points for for the podcast. So, it turns out that product market fit is the number one reason why startups succeed, and the lack of product market fit is the number one reason why startups fail. Now, that's all well and good. But what actually is product market fit? In the summer of 2015, we started much like any other software by writing code. And in the summer of 2016, we were still coding. And in the summer of 2017, we were still coding. Now I felt this incredible, intense pressure to launch, both from the team and also from within myself. After all, Reportive had launched, scaled, and been acquired in less time. And yet here we were two years in and we still had not launched. But deep down inside, I knew that no matter how intensely I felt this pressure, a launch would go very badly. I did not believe we had products market fit. And then although I knew it, I couldn't just say that to the team. These are super ambitious, hyper intelligent engineers. They poured their hearts and souls into the product. I needed a plan. And so, in the April of 2017, I started my search for the holy grail, for a way to define product market fit, for a metric to measure product market fit, and for a methodology to systematically increase product market fit. 
Now I searched high and low. I read everything I could find. I spoke with all the experts and I came across Sean Ellis. Sean ran growth in the early days at Dropbox, LogMeIn, and Eventbrite. He coined the term growth hacker, and Sean found a leading indicator of product market fit, one that is benchmarked and predictive. Just ask your users this. How would you feel if you could no longer use the product and measure the percent who answer very disappointed. After benchmarking hundreds of startups, Sean found that companies that struggle to grow almost always get less than 40% very disappointed. And the companies that grow the most easily almost always get more than 40 disappointed. In other words, if more than 40% of your users would be very disappointed without your product, then you have initial products market fit. And the great thing is that this metric is more objective than a feeling. It predicts success better than net promoter score. And it is not only the best way to measure product market fit, we used it to develop our very own product market fit engine. And that's the primary focus of the article that we just mentioned. With this engine, you can have a methodology for systematically increasing product market fit, for continually iterating your way towards it. And the engine even automatically can generate a roadmap, a roadmap that is guaranteed to increase product market fit. So for folks who are interested to learn more, I would highly recommend checking the article out. Richard, maybe we can include the link in the show notes. And the the last thing I would say on the topic is in the last few months, because it's become such a hot button topic, it is literally the most important thing for any founder to think about. I've started working with a company on building a product to help get you to product market fit. That's awesome. And so for folks interested in that, it's uh, called Viable Fit, viable.fit. And so they've taken the whole content, the whole engine that we described, that we built with sticks and glue and typeform and send with us. Uh, and uh, help scouts and a whole bunch of things that we roll together. And they've built one product to do the engine from start to finish. So check out the article uh, and check out viable.fit. For sure. We'll, we'll put notes to both of those in the in the podcast. So I was rereading the article um, this morning and it kind of occurred to me, it's like, you know what? 40% seems like low. If I, you know, if I had no idea of this, if I, if I think that 60% of my users would be okay or somewhat okay with my product not existing. That feels like a lot of people, you know, so 40% feels low to have that product market fit, but you know, you've done like, you've done all the work. Sean Ellis has done all the work, but just anecdotally, it looks like a lower number than you might expect. The nuance is in the wording of the question. And this is why it's so much more powerful than the net promoter score at measuring the degree of emotional connection or the degree of utility or necessity of your product. So let's go back to that question again. How would you feel if you could no longer use the product and you give people three choices, very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, and not disappointed? So let's imagine how you would have to feel to answer very disappointed. I would be very disappointed if I could no longer use this product. 
that's a really high bar. It's a much higher bar, actually, than I would recommend this product. People recommend products all the time. Doesn't necessarily mean they'd be very disappointed without them. And so it really gets to the heart of how much they need or desire it. And, and one of the other things that you mentioned in the article was that you asked the, the customers what they loved about the product and what type of people should the product be for. And you built these word clouds out. And, and you know, one of the things particularly about the product that people loved was, was the speed of it. And then you kind of doubled down on speed and you made it even faster. And then you asked the people that were somewhat, would have been somewhat disappointed, you know, what would be important for them. And you built a word cloud out of that and kind of, you know, that kind of laid the groundwork for your product roadmap. And so one of the things that, that I wanted to ask, and, and this kind of comes back to like a quote from Jeff Bezos, and uh, I'm contractually obligated to include one <laughs> quote from Jeff Bezos in every AWS podcast. I don't know if you read his, his shareholder letters, but one that he wrote in, in 2016, and I'm just going to quote it directly here, was, you know, customers are always beautifully, wonderfully dissatisfied. Even when they report being happy and business is great. Even when they don't yet know it, customers want something better and your desire to delight customers will drive you to invent on their behalf. So, um, you know, he goes on, no customer ever asked for Amazon to create the Prime membership, but it sure turns out that they wanted it. So you have this word cloud of things that they have told you that they want or told you that they really love about the product. But how do you invent on their behalf when it might be something a customer doesn't even know that they want? You have to find the theme. And I've never worked at Amazon, so I'm, I'm going to stab in the dark here at the theme. But if I were to guess, as a long-time Prime subscriber and fan of the company and uh, what you all are building, I would guess the theme is everything you want right when you want it. And that started with books and then went on to retail. And now it's services as diverse as groceries and Prime and compute power and really everything. With Superhuman, the theme is speed. It's power. It's living your most superhuman actualized self, living up to the potential you always believed you had. And so you're right. You can't always just depend on what people are asking for. And so to invent the things that will delight them, but which they'll never think about, you have to think of things that fit the theme. And so what we do at Superhuman is we hold regular offsites, whereas the entire company, we're only about 45 people, so we can still do this. We go to a location and we pick an aspect of the theme and we brainstorm towards it. And that's where many of our most powerful features have come from, features that no one ever asked for. So I'll give you an example. We have this feature called Split Inbox. It allows you to take your inbox and to split it up into disparate streams. And if you're a manager inside a technology company, you have a lot of streams of email to worry about. It might be on the one hand, GitHub and Jira, or on the other hand, Office 365 or Google Docs. And we've all had the experience of someone sending us a document or tagging us on a pull request and saying, hey, did you see my email or did you see my request? And we say, I'm sorry, I missed it. It got buried. And in doing so, we're being bad managers. Now with Split Inbox, we can pull out those streams into a separate inbox and promise to ourselves and to the teammates that we serve, I will inbox zero this every single day, regardless of how busy the rest of my inbox gets. Now I have a stream 
For documents, I have a stream for engineering, I have a stream for recruiting, another one for customer support, and then one for team email and outside email. We would never have thought of that feature, I think, just in the product team alone. That idea came from an engineer who was living that problem with their GitHub notifications. And so that's the way I would approach it. Figure out the theme, and the question in the article that points to that theme is what is the main benefit of the product to you, and then hold regular offsites if you can do that, brainstorms if you can't, to think of new ways to satisfy that theme. That's really, really useful, great advice, actually. And so the, the last question I'm going to have on this on the article was, at the end of the article, you mentioned where your product market fit score is. I think it was at 58% at the time of the, the article. Where are you guys now? So it moves in the region of 50 to 60 at any given point in time. The key with this score is you're always going to want to widen and scale the market because if you don't, you won't grow. Now in doing so, you will encounter people who are kind of like the, the customers you had before, but a little bit different in certain ways. And so the score might go down. In fact, I would go so far as to say the score will almost certainly go down. And it's our jobs to keep the score high by continually running the process, by continually finding out what it is those people need, how you can improve the products for them, and catching all the little edge cases that perhaps didn't matter in the early days because you just didn't have the volume of user or that type of user. And so it oscillates. So long as you're keeping it above 40%, you're in good shape, though. So that, that's everything that we're going to cover on the product market fit article. Like I said, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Everybody should read it. Uh, it's one of those things that you should read multiple times as a founder, you know, once every year. I have a couple of books like that. Just keeps you sharp because there's always things that you're going to forget uh, if it's been nine or 12 months. So one of the things that's kind of obvious of, you know, like me, I did a little bit of research and, you know, listened to podcasts, read other things that you'd written. You're obviously a very kind of clear thinker. And I don't know if you if you are or you just edit everything down to the nth degree and maybe the article, you know, was the 87th draft, but but I don't guess. So I think you are coming across in on this podcast, at least in every other podcast and the articles you've written is that somebody has real clarity of thought. And is that a natural thing or do you work in it? Are there tips that you have for kind of keeping your mind clear and being very thoughtful about the actions that you take and the things that you write? Well, first of all, thank you for saying so. That's very kind of you. Uh, and it is something that I do deliberately try for. But the thing I'm trying for isn't clarity per se. It's a very fine balance between a left brain and right brain thought. Just like any other part of the body, I believe the brain becomes stronger and faster with exercise. So to exercise my left brain, I take every decision with intention and deliberation, and maybe this is what you're feeling. This involves writing down the reasons for every non-trivial decision. And this part is important, identifying the single primary reason to take a decision. This is a trick that I learned from Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn. I've seen a lot of bad decisions get made due to a collection of weak reasons, whereas the best decisions get made when there is a singular burning reason. 
And this is now something that we practice at Superhuman. I often ask, what is your single primary reason for this decision? Now to exercise my right brain, I stay very creative both in work and outside of work. In work, I'm still in all the details for product, design, and marketing. I love pushing pixels just as much as crafting copy. And outside of work, I'm always developing my right brain through my hobby, uh, and I've got a bunch of hobbies, but the one I'm most into right now is a D&D Games Master. And so this allows me to work on everything from my game design instinct. And I used to be a game designer professionally back in the day, and that helps us build better products at Superhuman through to my voice and my character acting, which helps me become a better public speaker, better at improvisation, uh, to the point where, you know, folks have commented on other podcasts, I can sound prepared and polished without actually having prepared a particular answer for any given question. Yeah, I uh, I think that is true. I think you're coming off as significantly more polished than, than any guest I have, and I include myself in that. But I I wonder if people have noticed that, you know, you there is a there's a pause between my question and your answer where I guess you're you're thinking your brain's probably working very fast, but you're thinking through maybe even how you want to structure it, what you want to say, rather than just reacting immediately. So that was a result of public speaking training that I did growing up. Uh, I joined the debate team and didn't really enjoy necessarily the debate aspect of it. What I really loved was the public speaking aspect of it. Yet from the debate side, what I learned is just take a quick pause. No one will criticize you for it. No one will think you're any less intelligent or any less thoughtful. On the contrary, they may actually think the opposite. Oh, he's taking his time. He's Whatever he's about to say is likely to be a bit more thoughtful. And then that does give you time to think of the, the four-point structure of how you're going to answer. So you are obviously English, uh, English entrepreneur in the in the Bay Area. You've been there since uh, you found a reporter. I think you were in Y Combinator. Do you believe it's still necessary to move to the Bay Area or at least to the US if you are a European or a UK startup and you want to be really successful? In short, no. I don't think folks have to move. And in Medium, I strongly believe that as a venture-backed founder, you have the responsibility to your employees, to your shareholders, and to yourself to be in the best place in the world for whatever it is that you do. So in 2010, if you were building a consumer internet company like Reportive, there was no better place than Silicon Valley. And in 2014, if you were starting the fastest email experience in the world and deliberately aiming it at founders, CEOs, executives, and managers, there was no better place than Silicon Valley. But would I start a gaming company here? Probably not. The gaming development talent is elsewhere. Now, talent aside, the one thing that Silicon Valley does have, and this makes it unique in the world, is a mind-boggling abundance of startup capital. The engine of wealth creation is so strong here that the amounts of investment dollars available are truly off the charts. If you add up all of the venture and growth capital that flows through Silicon Valley and compare it to the rest of the world, it's shocking how much more Silicon Valley is. So if your company is one that could benefit from venture capital, 
I think you really do owe it to yourself to ask whether you should be here, because if not, your competitors will, and then they may grow faster than you. So the true arbitrage for those who are willing to do it is this. Number one, the CEO moves to Silicon Valley. They pay the very high cost of living. Silicon Valley is the most expensive place to live in in the US. But in return, they get networked with the investment community and they can raise incredibly large amounts of money at valuations that might be three or four times higher than rest of world. In other words, they can outcapitalize their competition. And number two, their R&D team works in the rest of the world. They get to pay a relatively low cost of living and more importantly, live in much nicer, more nourishing, culturally more diverse places. So not only does the company raise more money than its competitors, they get to spend it much more efficiently, and then perhaps the employee base can also be much happier. Now, it's a very special kind of arbitrage. You can't easily change a company to being that. So it really most applies to companies that are starting today. When you're two, three, four, five people, if I were to do it all over again, that's the way that I would do it. So one of the things that I've noticed in the in the UK is there is a growing abundance, nothing close to the valley, but you know a growing amount of startup capital. There's a growing number of angel investors as well, whether they come from tech or, or not. But what there isn't is the appetite for risk. You know, the people aren't looking, you know, they're always looking for traction. If it's a an unsexy market, you're going to struggle to raise, even if you've got decent traction. And, you know, like you mentioned, the valuation numbers are, are going to be lower, even for really solid, great businesses. There's a company that um, I advise the CEO. She is amazing. And they just closed her Series A. And it wasn't a struggle so much, but it wasn't as easy as it should have been. And the amount of money they raised uh, should have been much higher for where they are as a company in terms of traction, in terms of what they're building, in terms of the market that they're in. And I think that if she had been in the Valley and was raising money there, you know, it would have been much easier and she would have raised, uh, you know, larger amounts. But I think that will be a Series B conversation for her. Right. And that is a good time to move over is at around the Series B phase. But from the perspective of an investor, if you're not willing to take risk, you're not going to get reward. And I'll talk specifically to angel investing, which is where I spend most of my investing time. Uh, for those that don't know, I also run a really fun seed fund with one of my friends, Todd Goldberg. We've made about 20 angel investments to date from that fund. Our biggest returns, and I'll, I'll speak just to my own personal returns, my biggest personal angel investing returns have been at the very earliest stage where the product barely even existed, when it was just the founder and perhaps a co-founder, when we were maybe one of the first two or three checks in the company, before even the company would go into a Y Combinator. For those companies, I'm anywhere for 50 to 70 times my return on investment. On paper, of course, at this point, those companies may still not work out. Sure. But on paper, 50 to 70x, that's a big deal. Now, if I had waited to YC Demo Day, or if I had waited to the seed round, or even the Series A, I'd be 1.5x or 2x or maybe even 3x. And there is a huge difference between even 3x and 50x your return on investment. So if you want to make money in the angel investing game, 
you got to seek out risk. you got to find the founders who you would go to bat for whatever product they're building. I believe that's where the best returns are to be made. For sure. And when you are angel investing, is there anything in particular that you're looking for in founders? I think that being a good angel investor is about looking for the reasons why an investment could work. Why is this founder great? Why is this founder going to take over the world? I often, for example, get asked, you know, are there red flags? Are you are there things you avoid? And I mean, absolutely, yes, there are. But the absence of red flags doesn't mean you make the investment. And so to make the investment, I look for three very specific things. Firstly, I look for founders who have the following magic combination. On the one hand, they know how to make something people want. And on the other hand, they know how to make people realize they want it. If a startup only has one of these, only one of product, or only one of distribution, it will unfortunately not be able to succeed. Secondly, I look for founders that demonstrate exceptionally high levels of grit. And I define grit as the combination of passion and perseverance. Passion means that the founder will not easily get distracted with new interests or goals. And perseverance means that the founder will follow through with hard things despite epic challenges. And the founders that are both persistent and relentless in moving towards making their startups successful are the ones that demonstrate perseverance. Thirdly, I look for the possibility of a billion-dollar outcome. Actually, the most common reason why I end up passing on a great founder with a good business is not because there was anything wrong with the founder. Often they're incredible people, but because I could not get to conviction that the business would support a huge outcome. And this is one of the, the, the nuanced differences when you're investing your own personal capital or you have a fund, even if it's a small fund like Todd and I run, you really do have to look for the billion dollar outcomes. Yeah, because the, the that's what makes the economics worth it. You you know, you're going to lose money as an angel investor. You're going to lose money on the majority of your deals. You're, as you mentioned, you're coming in super early, pre-product, you know, potentially pre-traction. And so you have to have the bigger outcomes to, to make up, you know, for the loss. Okay, so... That's all the, the really interesting questions I'm going to ask. I know you have to run very shortly. So I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask everybody. Everybody you know, on these podcasts, particularly in this kind of coronavirus lockdown time, ask people, you know, what are they recommending? What do they watch? What do they read? I'm asking for your anti-recommendations. What should people avoid? What have you read or what have you watched that is not worth people's time? Anything that's related to promoting fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I think one of the best parts of human psychology is our unending ability to source and create new hope. And if there's one thing that I don't like about current media, whether it's cable news or whether it's social media like Facebook and Twitter, it's how what spreads is misinformation and what spreads is negative energy. Good news does not spread. Yeah. And so I think we owe it to ourselves if we want to be responsible members of society to limit our exposure to content which, if we think about it deeply, we might think, well, maybe this, this was designed to create uh, hysteria or to create a feeling of fear because ultimately that's what makes 
these networks sticky and engage. Yeah. And it's, it's sad that that's true, but it's true. What's interesting is that the last three people yourself included, so Fred Destin, um, partner at Stride, uh, investor in PillPack and Deliveroo, and Reshma Sahoni, who is the you know, co-founder of SeedCamp, basically both answered the exact same thing, which is you know, get off social media. It is negative. It is not good for you. The last question is, who would you like to hear on a podcast like this that you may not have heard on a you know, VC investor startup podcast before? Hmm, how interesting. I would love to hear the growth stories of, of companies, but not necessarily from the founder's perspective. Uh, so let's get, the, let's get the heads of growth at the critical moments in time. A person who springs to mind, who actually now is a VC, uh, Mercy Grace works at Lightspeed Ventures. She was early head of growth at Slack in the early days. So let's pick those most interesting companies and find the heads of growth, maybe when there are about 30, 40, 50 people, uh, folks like Elliot, who I mentioned earlier on the podcast, and have them tell their stories. I was fortunate to work for one of them at one of the most iconic companies of our time. And most people don't have that experience. So let's help them tell their stories and give them a platform. That's awesome. Okay, before we go, where can people find you? Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram? TikTok? Uh, well, I'm obviously on email, rahul at superhuman.com. Anyone should feel free to email me. I'm on Twitter at Rahul Avora. That's my first name and last name. My DMs are open, so just mention me or DM me. Uh, and those are the two best ways to get in touch. Awesome. Rahul Vora, CEO of Superhuman, for joining the AWS Startup Podcast. Thank you once again. If you are looking to get started on the cloud with AWS, our Activate program provides startups with a host of benefits, including AWS credits, technical support, training, and other resources to help grow your business. Head to aws.amazon.com backslash activate for more. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.